This episode of Talk Your Book is proudly brought to you by Honan, providing a complete range of insurance, risk, and financial solutions. Bundy's called me up, told me to take a look, but stay stubborn as bulls and talk their own book. Get the money, get the money, get, get the money. Well, Andrew Muchaka, mate, thanks very much for coming back on Talk Your Book. Before we get into it, there'll be some that didn't hear you on your uh, your last appearance. Maybe you could start by talking about Flinders Investment Partners and, uh, and how you guys look to invest. So we've just celebrated our sixth year in existence, and I think... What's been pleasing, uh, our focus is on small cap investing. So everything outside of the ASX 100 or the so-called large caps. Um, and what's been really pleasing is our investors have benefited from consistent outperformance through those years. And, and what's exciting about our approach is that we don't source our idea generation from one particular sector. We don't have themes in the portfolio. So the team of three, which have been in place since day one, have got experience with all sectors in our market, and we choose, we look to pick stocks and add value through all of those industries. And, and it's, a, it's exciting. It's an exciting part of the market because it's, it's evolving. There are new entrants coming into this market, new business models coming into this market. So it's been really exciting, and, and the fund has grown as well. So we, we, we couldn't be happier. And what stock did you want to talk about today? I wanted to talk about Ciro Resources today uh, because I think it's a unique opportunity, particularly given that there's a renewed focus on battery materials. And I, we actually feel that this particular commodity, graphite, and this particular stock, Ciro has been left behind in the in the scheme of things, in you know playing second fiddle to things like lithium, um, which I think are important. But at the same time, graphite is a core component of the EV industry, as well as static uh, battery um, uh, manufacture. And so we'll get to their, their two core assets in a minute. Maybe give, give us your, your top-down big-picture view of the EV market. I think most people listening or watching this will have a, a bit of a feel that this is a, a big thematic, but maybe just wrap some colour around just how big the EV thematic is for you over the next five to ten years. So I think... What's been ple- uh, pleasing, what's been interesting about the sector is this, this focus on net zero emissions in, in 2050 or where, uh, whatever time frame in, in the medium to long term is a reality. But we do know the large component of emissions comes from the transport industry. So EVs and as a middle step, hybrid EVs are, are, will, become a more and more, will become more and more relevant in the market. And not only will they become more relevant, they're being mandated and regulated in that way, such that a lot of the manufacturers are talking about no longer producing internal combustion engines, if you think about Volvo and some of the other large producers, post-2030. And then, of course, you have the um, regulatory environment, which is changing as well in some countries that will limit the purchase of those um, of those. Uh, emitting vehicles in preference for hybrid so or evs so from and the data associated with demand have basically projected skyrocketing production and demand for um, those vehicles in not only in 2025 to 30 but even in the more recent history and 
The recent data has been pretty substantial as well or significant as well. So that has led to the interest in uh, battery material and securing that battery material for the expected demand and the pull-through to come over the next five to ten years. Those dates of 2030 when a lot of countries are imposing, imposing, um, a hard date, if you like, where EVs or non-internal combustion engines will no longer be allowed to be used or purchased, it really precludes someone from buying Mm. an internal combustion engine car in 2027 even or 2028 because the resale value of that car would, would, would become so low is that sort of how you're viewing it and that really that's 2030 hard day it sounds like you're in the market for a new vehicle chris i'm (laughs) sensing something too and i can tell you i've had similar i I guess in developed countries and and i'm not sure if a lot of people would agree with australia being progressive on this front but if you were in the uk you'd certainly be considering that because your residual value would be you know being destroyed there'd be nothing well there'd be a residual if you're on a lease, you'd have a no, you'd have a bullet payment, but it wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to get much of a resale value for that particular car if you were the leasor. So, in my case, in our, I, I agree with you entirely. I think it's making the that next purchase very difficult for someone, particularly if they're talking five years. We're at 2021, maybe five years, maybe you get one more, maybe you'll get one more cycle out of it. But I don't disagree with you, and which. And that commentary is really interesting from the perspective of um, car parts as well. This is not just about battery materials. This is about the entire industry. Now, the reality is the car park, as it's known, for internal combustion engine vehicles or old model vehicles will remain in place long long beyond 2030. Um, It's... It's possible that excises may go up on fuels to, to try to, you know, incentivise people to make that call to change. But they're still going to be around, So, but there will be a transition. And that transition is not happening now, but it will happen towards the back end of this decade, I'm sure. Having said that, in this country, we haven't mandated anything like that. The only issue, it, I won't say it may not happen, but what you'll also have is you'll have global manufacturers of vehicles pulling their uh, their internal combustion engine model, say, as we described with Volvo, and there are others. So you'll probably get to the point where your selection or your options down the track will be limited to hybrid and electric vehicles. And so on to Sarah. Talk me through their asset in Mozambique. Uh, how big is it? What's its life of mine? Uh, and maybe what's its cash cost compared to other graphite producers around the world? The mine is located in Balama, which is 400 kilometres west of Pemba coast, where they export product from. The project has been on care and maintenance for the last two years, well, until six months ago, uh, because of the collapse in graphite prices in, in primarily China. China is the main source of graphite globally. Um, and on the back of that market tanking following their removal of incentives for EVs in that market, um, the Syrah business put, went into care and maintenance and it was the strategic call and it was the right call and the fact that the plant had already been built and a lot of investment has gone into this particular business. And, and it, it, it's important to recognise that this hasn't been a journey that we've been part of because uh, it's, yeah, it's been a really 
volatile journey to this point. Now, however, is that the outlook for the business looks stronger. Now, going back a step, the capacity of the plant is around 350,000 tonnes per annum. They've sanctioned or they've restarted at a level of about 15,000 tonnes per month. Um, and that at that level, they're starting to actually offset their fixed costs, um, but they're not earning the kind of the profits that we would expect them to earn in three and five year time, but they're working towards that and they're working within the confines of demand in the market. So we would expect them to reach that name, cap, name plate capacity in two years' time. Um, in terms of pricing, prevailing pricing is anywhere between uh, $400 and $500 a tonne for, for graphite. Uh, and there are some out there that believe that that number could be in the order of six to $700 a tonne in the medium term. And I think that's feasible, particularly when you consider the cost advantage, well, particularly consider where the demand is going for EVs generally. You would expect that companies that have a price advantage and What's interesting for us is that being able to restart capacity at, at Balama with 75% of their, the workforce they had prior to suspension. Um, they don't need more staff at this stage than what they have in operation currently. So we feel as though in the medium term, they've actually optimised their OPEX to support a, re, a, a restart. If you consider the economics of a restart, they're actually facilitating their, their balance, their costs appropriately with the prevailing price. So two things that are produced at Balama, fines and coarse flake. Coarse flake goes into primarily the uh, steelmaking industry. So that's an industry that continues to be um, uh, robust, but there it has its own cycle, of course. Um, and if you look at the production profile for Balama, it's 80% fines, 20% coarse, and that's where you would expect their product mix to look going forward. Um, but it's, of course, the fine material that goes into um, uh, battery, battery metals. But before it gets to battery metals, it has to go through a purification process to improve or enhance the graphite content of the, of the material to 99.999%. The product leaves Balama at between 97 and 98%. And what's the life of mine for that? Um, uh, the the resource is, I'm not suggesting it's evergreen, but it's at least 10 to 15 years of resource at, um, at Balama. So the outlook, for the, the outlook for the asset, and that, of course, includes very little in the way of exploration. So there's more to come on that front but it can at least sustain 10 years of production out of Balama. And is it in the lowest quartile of, of producers for, for graphite? Really important question because this is how it sets itself apart from other producers, particularly in China, uh, well, in China, um, is that the – and it starts with the raw material. The raw material is high um, uh, graphite content. So from that perspective – the amount of beneficiation required to get it to an export product is lower. Um, and so they benefit. So Syrah benefits from that and will get to the next phase of their um, value chain in a sec. 
but it allows for um, attractive input into any um, uh, purification process. So the buyer is well placed. That all obviously comes at a cost uh, for the buyer, but it places it places Balama well from a global production perspective. And talk to me about Mozambique as a jurisdiction. How comfortable are you with it? And, and what, what's been your experience of, of owning a company that's operating there? So this is our, so, so we're clear, we've, we've owned companies that have operations offshore. Now, the fiscal regime is probably the, the basis for, um, uh, say, sovereign risk, you could argue. Now, there are obviously other geopolitical things that can occur within a jurisdiction, and Mozambique has its issues as well, uh, particularly on the back of, uh, in, in recent history, on the back of the closure of the Total LNG facility, that has actually caused some civil unrest in the northern part of Mozambique. In relation to Balama and, and for Syrah, uh, it's probably one of the battery, if you think about the Australian from an Australian context, um, most of the other battery metal producers are in Australia. Oh, well, you know, there's some South America, if you think, or a cobra there in South America. And frankly, that fiscal regime is, is as volatile as any other in the market or globally. I'm not comparing to, I'm just saying that there are sovereign risk is real. The comfort we draw from Mozambique is that the fiscal terms have remained static since the onset of the project, which we're really comfortable with, which provides us comfort. So there are some in the market that may view anything non-Australia production as risky. Um, the reality is even in this country, there is risk of changes if you think of royalties. But then if you think about compliance around, I'm not suggesting they ought not to be in place, but you think about environmental protections, native title protections, there are risks associated with projects um, that may delay projects uh, and may actually make things uneconomic. So I think what's critical for us is to ensure that we're on top of the um, any developments on that front and respond accordingly. And so the graphite's dug out of the ground at Balama in Mozambique and then shipped to the Vidalia processing facility in America. Maybe talk us through uh, what that asset looks like. Okay. So a couple of things. First of all, the product right now excludes... So that's the intention of management. The intention of management is to take the, the raw or the concentrate, effectively high-grade graphite product, to an, an, a, a, a further evaluating process, which is Vidalia in Louisiana. Now, that process there takes us to that next step of value enhancement, active anode material. Active anode material is, in fact, the material that goes into batteries. Now, typically... The graphite is sent to China. China produces the active anode material and sends it to the battery manufacturers in Japan, South Korea, and potentially in the US. What CIRA have done and what they've proposed, they've actually produced a pilot scale version of or plant which delivers aspect product which has been tested and trialled with customers. They recently, they recently hired Wally to take him to take the company to their first train of 10,000 tonnes per annum active anode material at Vidalia. The point about that is now we're no longer talking about material that's four to 500 or six to $700 a tonne. We're talking about material that are as above 
$5,500 a tonne or $7,000 a tonne. So in addition to that, you're talking about production in the US. Now, there's no secret that um, uh, the policy in the US is to secure supply of these important battery materials. Now, the focus to date has been on things like lithium, but the reality is you cannot have a battery without a, without a graphite anode. I mean, you just in a lithium-ion battery, you need a graphite anode. Um, so from that perspective, securing that product as well and having it in your own jurisdiction is very attractive. So I think strategically, I think Sarah's done an, a, an excellent job and you'd expect that particular project to be sanctioned in this, six, in this half of the calendar year. And what sort, of, what sort of practical benefits could CIRA get by being in a US jurisdiction with that processing facility? You know, is there potential favourable debt terms underpinned by the US government? Is there expedition through the approval process? What sort of things in a real tangible sense do you think CIRA could benefit from by being in the US? So, so as a starting point, as I highlighted a moment ago, the fact that they're vertically integrated makes it makes it one of the allows them to import cost at the lowest possible rate into the into the plant at Vidalia. So that's the first thing. So wherever the whichever jurisdiction they're in, it's an attractive offering from an investment perspective. Step forward a bit. What you're saying is absolutely correct. Um, uh, if you consider other entities that operate in um, in the US. Austal, for example, um, their facilities um, in Alabama, Alabama have benefited from really attractive government financing. Mm. Um, not only that, they've been handed grants as well through the process because they are a large employer of state local in, in that local economy. So there's no, I actually think as a starting point, as an, an employer, as a manufacturing facility, domestically, you're attractive to start with, but then as a you know a material employer of staff, and then of course as a material of significance from the battery perspective, uh, in that hunt for you know transition from uh, a green from from um, hydrocarbon based generation to renewable based generation, that's clearly an important component. So yeah, I I, I, I agree with you. I think um, they look. It, it's a favourable industry as a starting point, but heightened with the fact that they have those green credentials. And so in terms of, say, looking two to three years out when you when you put your numbers down on a bit of paper, maybe walk us through what you think they could be earning and what sort of multiple you'd be prepared to attach to that earning and, and maybe just what their market gap is today for, for those watching. Yeah, so uh, if you think about what initially attracted us to the story, and I'll, I know I'll get to your question in a moment but what attracted us to the story is the fact that if you consider the history of this particular company when we purchased the the stock early this calendar year it was nowhere near the highs that it traded at historically like it achieved six seven dollars six or six dollars a share mind you it's raised a lot of capital along its journey now that capital has actually gone somewhere but it's made the journey very challenging for other investors, I guess. So currently the stock's trading on a 700 million mark cap. Now, if you compare that to a lot of other lithium names, Pilbara's on seven bill, 
galaxies on. Now, Galaxy and Orocobre are combined, so they're seven bill. In fact, the index weight of galaxies of, of, of Orocobre is higher than Pilbara at the moment. So it's a, it's a, I mean, it's, these are phenomenal moves. Incidentally, um, uh, Pilbara's up 10 times from early last year. Now, it's fair to say Syra has moved, but it hasn't moved to that extent. Now, going back to your question, as part of that ramp up from 15,000 tonnes per month to the nameplate capacity, which we think they'll get in 2023, it's only then that you start actually getting the scale benefits from your, from your workforce and from the plant in itself. You do generate the benefits. So we'd expect them to, first of all, become cash flow positive, in fact, profitable in 2023, and then they grow that profitability from that point in time. You ask about multiple. This is an NPV. The, it, the way we value this company is through a net present value of those earnings. So the current share price is about $1.50, and it's a bit of a shame that we, you and I didn't speak about a month or two ago because the stock was trading $1.10, um, or it's $1.40 today. But point is, it's re-rated with, to an extent to the rest of the market, but the reality is the opportunity set for this stock is much higher when you consider full production at Abalama and also Vidalia, which, and, and incidentally, Vidalia starts off as a 10,000 tonne per annum train, but it could easily be a 50,000 tonne per annum type business. And so in our view, we can see share price, we can share it, 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 using our own modelling, we can see a share price for the company between $2.50 and $2.60 at this point in time. Beautiful. That's a, that's a pretty good appreciation from where it is today. So hopefully it keeps running for you and uh, made us a brilliant outline. So thanks so much for coming back on the show. Appreciate it. And thanks for asking me back on. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, Andrew. This episode of Talk Your Book was proudly brought to you by Honan who go beyond a transactional insurance broker to deliver better outcomes for their clients. If you're enjoying Talk Your Book, make sure you subscribe to Chris Judd Invest. Nothing you hear today should be considered investment advice. Please do your own research and seek out your own financial advisor before committing any capital to these markets.